Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by the Classic Learning Test, a classically based alternative to the SAT and ACT, which is the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 130 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred college admissions test. Students benefit from same-day results and can share them with colleges at no additional charge. To learn more, head over to cltexam.com. Again, that's cltexam.com to learn more or to register. Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed featuring interviews with contemporary authors, discussions about key figures and movements in literary history, examinations of various genres and current events, and celebrations of book nerddom. Things like bookstores, book design, book collections, and more. I'm David Kern. This is Chapter 9, in which I chat with one of the world's foremost typographers, Stephen Bannum, about Sans Forgetica, a new font he and a team of Australian researchers designed to help improve memory retention. Um, Trying to create a typeface that that actually and actively wanted to slow down the process of reading, that is really, really unusual. That is completely counter to what we would normally do. And secondary, I was also astounded at how that project actually resonated with the public all around the world. I could not believe the the uptake of this project because it it really did seem to feed into a worldwide um, anxiety around memory and how to retain uh, information. But I didn't know that before I started. For many of us, remembering what we read is probably the most significant challenge we face in our reading lives. For me, this is at least partly because I read too quickly, because I don't read actively enough, or because I'm too distracted by everything else in my life, to say nothing of my smartphone and laptop, which offer their own unique problems. But I've wondered for a while if the way books and magazines and newspapers lay out text has anything to do with this. Weirdly, I don't have any trouble remembering things like sports statistics, and I'm pretty good with names and dates overall but I have a hard time remembering what I read in large blocks of text unless I can somehow memorize where on the page something is. You know, is it on the bottom left of the page, for example? Typographer Stephen Bannum, my guest today, and the team behind a new font called Sans Forgetica were aware of this when they set out to solve the problem of memory retention at the request of the university where he works, RMIT in Australia, which was hoping to help students improve their study habits. As Mr. Bannum explains in this episode, scholars at RMIT approached him to find a way to help their students with memory retention using typography. So, Bannum joined forces with a multidisciplinary team of designers and scientists from RMIT to design a font based on the principles of cognitive psychology to help students better remember their study notes. The font they designed, Sans Forgetica, is actually more difficult to read than most typefaces, and that's by design. Each letter has gaps in it and is slanted in a somewhat unusual fashion, and it even has what's called a disconnected bowl. But hey, this isn't a visual medium, so I'll let you Google it before I confuse you trying to describe it. I do recommend checking it out. The designers claim that the desirable difficulty you experience when reading information formatted in Sans Forgetica prompts your brain to engage in deeper processing, thus leading to better retention. They encourage students to break down what they need to remember in smaller blocks of text and then translate it into Sans Forgetica on their computer. And for what it's worth, The font is compatible with both PC and Mac operating systems, and you can download it for free today at sansforgetica.rmit. And there's also a Google Chrome extension. Recently, a listener pointed the font out to me, so naturally, I wanted to interview its designer. Many thanks to Mr. Bannum for agreeing to chat. He's been involved in teaching and professional practice in graphic design and typography since 1991, which was the same year he founded Letterbox, 
an internationally renowned typographic studio in Melbourne. The studio work ranges from identities, publishing, exhibitions, and signage systems, all the way to public art projects and books. Bannum's also been involved in the writing and critique of graphic design in mainstream media, such as radio and newspapers, nationally and internationally. His professional practice has included work for the Melbourne Recital Centre, the Australian Performing Arts Market, the Commonwealth Games Arts Festival, the Australia Council, Arts Victoria, Melbourne University Press, the City of Melbourne, and others. So thanks to Mr. Stephen Benham for joining me. Without further ado, here's our conversation about the font he designed, Sans Forgetica. So here's my first question. It's probably not a, a particularly original question, but where did your interest in typography and uh, that sort of design come from? Was that something you were always interested in as a child? Well, funnily enough, I was really only interested in typography as such when probably I'd finished my undergraduate course. Mm. Um, but I've got to say the older that I get and the more, the more sort of reflective, I guess, I get about my life, I've actually realised that, uh, that really ever since I was a child, I've always been really interested in language. And um, because I've been interested in language and books, it sort of makes a very sort of logical step, I guess, from that to looking at words, to looking at sculpting words, to looking at the, the actual composition of, of a word, how it works spatially and so forth. So it, it actually, it, it does actually make a lot of sense when you put all the ducks in a row, but it took me a very long time to realise that. Mm. So my grandfather, for example, was a specialist in Esperanto, um, mm. you know, which is kind of almost a dead language now, but um, I, I can remember, you know, that idea that sort of utopian idea of using language to bring the entire world together was, was very much a topic of discussion in the family, you know? And, um, but, but I've only kind of thought about that as, as I've got older. Hmm. Did you, did you study many foreign languages growing up? I studied German and I tried to learn Swedish for a short time because I had Swedish pen friends. That was in the days of pen friends. My God, that feels like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I really, I really became directly engaged with typography when I went to live in Berlin in '89, where I was fortunate enough to see the Berlin Wall come down, um, literally mm. a block um, away from where I was living. Um, wow. But I, I really began to, um, I began to see other design studios in Germany that specialised um, completely in, in typography, and that, as a very sort of innocent young um, Australian, was was sort of nothing short of an epiphany. Mm. Um, so then I came back to Australia and I started to, uh, create a studio that would, um, that would, uh, service my want for things like writing, publishing, exhibition, research, as well as the commercial application of typography. Mm. Is there one of those particular areas that to this day you still just take the most joy in? I, I mean, I, I get an I get an immense, if not disproportional, kind of amount of joy by looking at letter forms. There's something, mm. there is something intrinsically spiritual almost about that fusion of form and function. That idea of form mm. and meaning, I guess you could say. And I'm sure a lot of your readers uh, would agree with that. That it's almost a um, it's almost a silent um, love. It's it's quite quite hard to explain to people who aren't necessarily involved in it, but it is, yeah. it, it is an immensely rewarding uh, job because every day I get to work on things that, um, that I really, really enjoy. So I've actually, I've wondered this, um, when, when a typographer like yourself looks at older books, do, do you, um, do you find that, 
I'm trying to think. I've never thought about this before exactly, or I've never had the opportunity to ask this question. So it's kind of happening on the fly here. Do you look at an old book and the way it was laid out and designed and the way that typography was done, you know, say a hundred year old book or even older. And do, do you think that, are you amazed by what they accomplished or do you look at that and say, well, that's really primitive and, and we need to abandon the principles, maybe not all the principles, but kind of move away from what they were doing then? Mm. Well, I think really when you're looking at a book which is, say, 100 years old, you need to put yourself into that particular kind of time and realise that they did extraordinary things given the, the kind of technical restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is also a mythology in topography that somehow uh, type was done really well in, in the sort of old days and somehow, it's, you know, the standards have dropped. I mean, I, I, I don't really, um, I don't agree with that. There's, there was a lot of really poor quality kind of job sort of type, uh, you know, that was going on. So this idea that, that it was somehow a, a golden age is, um, is, really, um, is really a myth. Um, but, I th- yeah, I think it's very, very important to understand and sympathise with the technical restrictions, particularly time. You know, time, time is one of those things uh, that people, people can't see or they can't, uh, they can't readily um, uh, understand because, of course, you know, a book is a time-based media, just like film and whatever. It's a, it takes a particular amount of time to read a particular book and we read different speeds and so forth. So there's all these elements in it that I think we have to um, be aware of other than just what the black ink looks like on the, on the paper, you know? Hmm. So is that one of the hardest challenges for a typographer to, to balance the sort of uh, the aesthetic, the, the aesthetic goals that you might have, the, the sort of creativity you want to dive into from an aesthetic perspective and then balance that with, just clarity and, and making it as as readable and perhaps even familiar and make it so that people can process what they're reading as quickly as possible? Is that the most difficult balancing act? Yes, it would be because, in fact, the, the true art of topography is virtually to, to, to make what you do almost invisible to the viewer, which is kind of strange. And, of course, the best typographers do that. Um, they actually make it look ridiculously simple when, in fact, it's incredibly complex. Um, so that's again. That's, that there's almost a kind of sleight of hand uh, with with um, with the good typographer. So, um, but that but but that humility to try to become invisible, to try to um, uh, to try to kind of downplay your own aesthetic presence is uh, something. It's like a virtue that you get probably when you mm. get a little bit older. I'd say. Mm. Is that is that? Um, I mean, are you at the point now where? that's actually a fun thing to try to do to make yourself invisible and, and make something so precise that nobody's thinking about the typographer? Uh, or, or do you sometimes wish you could uh, leave your mark more? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think uh, there, there's this, there's this um, perennial kind of struggle uh, between the ego, I guess you could say, and, and, the, and the more pragmatic side. So there yeah. really is a struggle between... Uh, wanting to create typography which is memorable and dramatic and, and yeah. aesthetic and striking, but also um, make make type that is um, that is infinitely readable and, as you say, invisible. And the great thing about typography is that even just within a page, you have the opportunities to do that. Of course, because you have the tiers of you know display type versus text type, and th- those those kind of structures can kind of service both of those uh, personal needs. Hmm. Is it one of those things where you figure, well, at least other typographers will see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. I mean, there's always that 
there's there's always that element uh, of kind of you know the dog sniffing the other dog's bottom kind of thing you know where where um where where you you do you do sort of want other topographers to to see to see what you've done because uh, for most people um, it's completely invisible but of course to the topographer it's it's absolutely explicit. Do you find that there are things that you have or marks or uh, sort of your own trademarks that have worked your way into the fonts that you've designed and the and the, or even um, you know, ways that you've used fonts over the years? Yes, there's no doubt about it. You can, you can become quite habitual um, and you can almost create, uh, dare I say it, almost um, a style of sorts, although I'm very, very wary of trying to define that style. I think that's a real yeah. danger. Um, and that's really where I think maybe Sans Forgetica is a, quite a unique project because that was probably one of the most counterintuitive type projects I've ever done. Hmm. Yeah, I, when researching it, I was struck by the fact that, I th- I, well, at least some articles about it said this. I don't, I don't want to say that you said this directly, but it, it, they were implying that for 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 you as you were working on it, you had to sort of not unlearn but ignore many of the principles of typography that you would have sort of internalized over the years that would become second nature to you. So, is that well? First of all, is that true? Did I get that right? Well, yes, that is right. In that, um, I had to I had to run in the in the completely opposite direction to what I would do habitually, and I think that was a marvelous um, exercise for me to do. I must say, um, to be able to privilege some of the psychological uh, theories that underpin that typeface over you know beauty and clarity um, uh, was quite was quite a quite a trick for me, but um, it was fantastic because of that. I feel like. I feel as though I've actually grown as a practitioner because I've mm. had to stretch myself. Yeah. Mm. Did you, um, I mean, did you, at the moment, did you, well, did you know that going into it that you were going to have to do that? Did you say, well, we're trying to design this font that is, you know, based on our research, that's, that's following these principles that we know based on the research and we want people to, we want to be able to help with retention and, and such things. So I, So that necessarily means I'm going to have to, uh, move away from these principles that I've been applying for years. Did you know that ahead of time or was that something that you discovered uh, through the act of creating this font? It was certainly the latter. Um, I, I, I was not actually expecting much from this project at all. I was actually kind of um, at the time downplaying it, thinking, oh, yeah, it's just a little kind of plaything on the side. And, uh, mm. of course, this project just went into all sorts of directions that I would have never, ever foreseen. So it was certainly um, uh, an experience, a learning experience that I undertook during the actual making of it rather than um, from, from some sort of an, an outset of, of the project. Hmm. What do you mean that it took you in places that you, that you never expected? Well, it took me into, well, it was sort of, I guess two tiers really. One is that it stretched me in terms of um, trying to create a typeface that that actually and actively wanted to slow down the process of reading. That is really, really unusual. That is completely counter to mm. what we would normally do. And secondary, I was also astounded at, the, at how that project actually resonated with the public all around the world. I could not believe the, the uptake of this project because it, it really did seem to have, feed into a worldwide um, anxiety around memory um, and how to, may, how to retain uh, information. But I didn't know that before I started. Hmm. 
did, so it's it's long been argued, I, I suppose, that we remember things better when we write them down. So was the was the goal with this font to to approximate something like that sensory experience of of the activity of writing it down? Was there something similar going on in what you were trying to achieve in terms of the parts of the brain you were trying to reach and so forth? Well, the um, the typeface is often referred to as a highlighter font, you know, like in that in some ways people are drawing a parallel between the act of physically engaging with a highlighter or with, with writing notes in regards to memory and recall. So there could be that, but I don't think there was a direct sense of the actual act of writing. It was more mm. about um, slowing down the reading process for very, very selected small pieces of text because, after all, mm. it wasn't made for um, particular you know, small quotes and particular points, um, and that's a very important, um, that's a very important um, uh, principle of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was more really about reading than it was about writing. Mm. Yeah, you, so I read that one of your colleagues, if, I, th- I think it was one of your colleagues, said that it ought to be used uh, sparingly for maximum effectiveness, um, you know, for... For not for large blocks of text because it could give you a headache and so forth. So when you were designing it at the time, was that the idea was to create something specifically for smaller blocks of text, or was the was the goal at first to say could we design something that will help with retention, even if it's even if the whole book say is written in this, or or was the goal to specifically make it for for smaller selections? The, the, yeah, well, I'd say the goal was specifically for very selected text because the university wanted this to be developed and made available for free uh, to students approaching their university exams. And so they, they were really, it was very much targeted towards um, students who were going through that process of making tiny little notes um, about that. So it was, it was never, ever uh, designed as a continuous text um, typeface, and it, and, it's, and, it, and it certainly does not work as that, that's, that's for sure. Hmm. Do you so what would be the ideal use for it? Say so, like I said earlier, before we started recording, many of our listeners are teachers or or parents who have students, or at least people who love to read. So, where would you see it, it being best used for? And one particular question I had was, if someone was trying to memorize, say, a poem, would you say that it's good for something like that with shorter lines, or is, is even a poem maybe too much? Uh, being it would be used too much and could could be kind of kind of productive. Well, I guess it depends on the extent of the, the poem. I mean, well, true, true. <laughs> but, um, I, I would certainly say that its best effect by far is when you use it with uh, use it for maybe in between you know one and ten words, and that's about it. Okay. Um, we've we've been sent samples from all around the world of people using it, and most of the time they respect that, but other times they just think, "Oh, great, here's a new Arial or something," and they just <laughs> and they they set it all in, there and it is just. It's just ridiculous, but um, that's the thing about fonts is once they're out there, you can never truly control their um, their use. Do you, is that, I mean, do you view that as a good thing or is that frustrating? It's frustrating. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about it. It's very, very frustrating. In the old days, the frustration came out of piracy. And now I think oh, yeah. it's actually, now now that's not such a big deal. Uh, now the, the, the issue, I think, is just trying to set parameters around um, that typeface, or particularly Sans forgetting, you're saying it is only good for this. 
And um, this is, of course, a recurring theme in the history of typography anyway, mm. which is to say that, you know, Times New Roman was, you know, designed for particular presses at a particular time in history. So, you know, so that, that, that kind of marrying of form and function is, is absolutely intrinsic in typography anyway. Do you have, I mean, this is slightly a, a, an aside, I suppose, do you, when you're reading books or something like that, do you, do, will you choose between, you know, maybe two different editions just based on there's a, there's a typeface in there that you're particularly fond of reading or, the, or are there specific typefaces that you just would only lay a book out in? There are particular faces that, um, that, that certainly do fade into the background. They, they really do. And all of the classic um, book faces that we're familiar with, you know, your Bembo, Garamonds and so forth, that they, you know, they're book faces. And so it's kind of hardwired in many ways uh, for us to almost, almost not see them as a font, to actually just simply see the information and to not see the carrier of that information. That's extraordinary. But that's taken, it's taken 100, 200 years or something, you know, for, yeah. for that to be that to be embedded. So again, that, that element of time is, is, um, hmm. is always there with this kind of stuff. Hmm. Do you, so if you were, uh, if you were working or giving a, doing a consultation for a, for a publisher, uh, hmm. or, you know, a magazine or something like that, that was saying, help me identify a typeface for, for laying out this book or that we're going to use for most of our work. Um, for all I know, you actually do this. Would you suggest not using more contemporary or newer fonts because it can create a sort of uh, dissonance with the reader where they're not familiar with it and so they're focusing too much on it? Or would you say, no, go for it, try that, see, you know, see what, see what, you know, have some fun with it? Well, I guess it really depends on how appropriate that, that particular um, sort of typographic voice is to their readership. So I guess if they're, if they're wanting to uh, communicate to a younger audience, younger audiences still for some strange reason uh, tend to equate sans serifs with modernity, um, which is kind <laughs> of strange. Um, so, you know, that, that, that would make uh, sense. Um, but there, again, there's quite a lot of mythology around that. There's some extraordinary contemporary uh, serif faces that do, that do really express our time, uh, despite the fact that they are serif time faces. So um, it's not as easy as kind of, you know, cleaving it down the middle into sands of, yeah. or, yeah. but um, uh, that, that kind of process that you're describing is, is a process of intense uh, testing. And um, really it would be a matter of saying, well, you know, how, how spatially economic, for example, would that, would that article have to be? So if they're wanting to produce a, 60 page magazine and they don't have the money for an 84 page magazine, then obviously you're going to have to start to look at the spatial economies of the columns and so forth and so forth. So there's sure. a whole stack of different um, parameters there. Mm. Before I let you go, I know we only have a couple minutes. I want to ask you about the design process a little bit for Sans Forgetica, if I could. Did you start with a baseline font that you had an idea that you could, that you could sort of tweak or or work on or evolve or something like that? Or did you have to, did you go from the ground up? Did you start with a blank page and just start drawing? Well, with Sense Forgetica, because the time frame was so uh, tight, we actually uh, used as the structure, we used our own, one of our own typefaces, Albion, um, which we'd drawn a few years ago. Okay. Um, and that's a complete multi-weight, you know, sans. And because we knew that it was going to have to go through a testing process, it was going to have to go up against other options, it made sense to build it on the body of Albion. So the, so the Albion was almost the kind of control, if you want to use a sort of scientific um, hmm. parallel, 
and then we would then um, begin to uh, take parts out of the letter form. We would create the backspacing. We would create those other special design features of Sans Forgetica on that architecture, on that structure of Albion so that it was immediately comparable. And that was very important. Hmm. How do you, I mean, some of these questions might just reveal that I actually don't know a lot about typography, which is fine with me. But uh, so in, in Sans Forgetica, you've got the gaps in the letters. Um, yes. Not between the letters, but actually the, 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 the gaps in the letters themselves. And um, how, did you, how, how did you decide where those gaps should be? I mean, was that just, an, again, an ongoing testing process? Well, that really came from um, a lot of experience around legibility because within each letter form, there is what they call a heart or an essence, and that is the essence of that letter form. So you can actually diminish that letter form. You can almost take out 90% of the actual letter form. But but if you keep the essence, the heart of that letter form, and it might be a tiny little part of it, it will still read as that as that actual letter but of course it takes a long time and a lot of experience to understand where the essence of each letter is Mm. so i was able to use that experience in sans forgetica and work out okay so what you know where does the essence of an s lie so Mm. i was able to kind of trim those back and so forth so that's that's really what it is and that's it's a it's a it's a um, it's a pretty familiar process even for type designers who do think who do typefaces like stencil typefaces and other other kinds of typefaces where they're actually taking parts of the letter away. So so when you talk about the essence of say an S, for example, does that essence is there something inherent to the letter S in terms of its essence, or is that does that essence change based on the typeface? Uh, the essence, the essence um, is completely different, of course, from letter to letter, and sure. it's also different from typeface to typeface. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's quite um, it's quite tricky. You can't you can't just apply a blanket uh, theory across these things. So you can't just know the letters, those particular letters. Although I'm sure you want to know the the sort of consensus shape that most people, you know, you know, know of a letter. But you also have to know that particular typeface in in and out. You have to know every letter very intimately to do something like this. Yes, that's right. And it really does feed into that, that, that idea of how we read in the first place, which is that, you know, we read by the word outline. We don't read letter by letter. Otherwise it would take, you know, months and months to read a brochure or something. So, um, <laughs> so, it, so that, that is really important. And that's really employing those, those very familiar uh, reading processes that really what you're creating is actually a word shape. Mm. So that's that's in essence it. You may you mentioned that we don't we don't read letter to letter, and it may, I've got young children who are, you know, in the early phases of you know varying phases of of learning to read, and it makes me think of how you know some when they're first starting they really will go letter to letter and try to try to it takes them a little bit of time to where it's sort of instinctive the the putting of those letters together. So then my question is regarding this font: is there a is there a an age or a grade level or, or a point at which you think this font would, would be the most effective? I mean, do you have to be a really proficient reader or would for, a, for you know, an, an eight or nine-year-old maybe who is a decent reader but still doesn't know all the words and hasn't seen all kinds of typefaces, could you still use a font like this with them if, they, if you were wanting to... Uh, well, I don't know what you want to use it for at that age, but theoretically. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, certainly Sans Forgetica has been used all around the world in schools for various means. 
Generally speaking, though, it, it is for older children. It's for children maybe from about 10 upwards. Mm. Um, but it's also been used on, um, it's, been, it's been tested on dementia patients, and, and now I'm talking on the other end of life here. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's, it's been used for all sorts of things. But I would say that it does rely on an, an inherent kind of familiarity, I guess, with a letter form and what it, what it means. Um, because prior to that, um, um, as I'm sure you've seen with your own children, um, what tends to happen with kids' books, very early ones, like, for example, Dr. Zeus or other ones like that, you'll find that the actual letter spacing is very, very wide compared to conventional typesetting. And that's really because the children are still grappling with the idea of each each particular letter shape. Mm. Um, so, yeah. How, what, what's the results of it being tested with people who have dementia? Have you, do you know? Uh, well, very early stages at the moment. Okay. Um, but it's certainly something that we never, ever um, built Sansphagetica for. And so we're extremely wary um, about it being um, used or applied for things that it wasn't designed for, sure. um, even though it, even though that's kind of interesting from a research point of view. But we do not want to ever promise people that they will not, you know, forget forget where their car keys are or whatever it is yeah. because yeah. of sensitivity. Like that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Did do you find that there is a difference among or or um, could be a difference among people who are have been exposed to more typefaces? Like that, they, that it's more effective or less effective or anything like that? That we haven't really tested, to be honest, because um, it was tested primarily on university students. Sure. Um, so I, I really don't know. Um, but the, the base typeface, Albion, is such a clear, simple, structural kind of typeface that... It's um, it you know, it really um, it really kind of feeds into a very familiar form. So it's not as though we based it on a wacky kind of typeface. Mm. Um, so yeah. Well, okay, I'll, I'll let you go here in a second. I want to. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So these are a little bit more general. Um, if someone wanted to to know more about typeface and and wanted to. You know, we have listeners who maybe have students or they themselves are just interested in, in the art form and, and learning more about what it is that they're subconsciously processing. Where would you go? What would you recommend for people who are, you know, they're not, maybe, maybe not even looking to be professionals, but just want to understand it more? Well, there's, there's no shortage of books um, about that. And there, um, there is certainly no shortage of entry-level uh, books about typography. And they, they tend to be, um, they tend to be arguing the sort of uh, cultural aspects of typography as well is about why 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 is typography important? What does typography say about us? So there are uh, books such as Eric Speakerman's um, "Stop Stealing Sheep and Find Out How Type Works." That's one of the best uh, books I can I can think of. Um, um, but there are there are many 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 books on on that. And I, the 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 reason why I'm talking about books and not websites is because I think sometimes when you're talking about um, print typography, I think it kind of almost needs to be consumed uh, by that medium rather than online. Um, there are millions and millions of videos on the history of typography and aspects of typography. There is, there is more material now, of course, than ever before. It's just mm. phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. But, um, yeah, so it's um, because, of course, most people are far more interested in typography now than they were because they have to make those kind of decisions every day. Mm. Yeah. Even just what what the what uh, what font are you going to use on your Gmail account? 
Yeah, well, because they have to kind of grapple with the inherent uh, sort of theory, which is that you cannot not communicate, as in that, you know, no no tie face is actually neutral. Every single tie face has has a complexion and has an expression, and you just cannot avoid that. Simple as that. Do you cringe whenever you see Comic Sans like everyone else does? Yeah, yeah, I do. But at the same time, um, because I know the history of, of, of Comic Sans, I, I, ha- I have a sympathy with um, Vincent Conner, the, the designer, because he's always being um, he's always being lampooned. But when in fact that that typeface was never designed, you know, as a, as a you know as a serious typeface. So I think um, yeah. I think people have to look at the purpose of the typeface, the intent of the typeface whether it is Comic Sans or whether it is Sans Figuerica, it's the same principle. Hmm. Do you have a, what's your favorite font that you created? I mean, you've, it seems like you've created several from the, from the research that I was doing and looking at some of your, your projects online, but is there a particular one that you're most fond of? Hmm. Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I I would probably actually say Sans Figuerica would have to be probably my favorite in so much that it just dragged me into a place where I had never been before, and I think hmm. that's that's extraordinary for me. I, I, I really I really appreciate that that kind of journey. So I'd probably say Sans Forgetica for the time being, anyway. Hmm. Uh, okay, here's my last question. Many of the, as you know, this is a this is a podcast about uh, about books and for book lovers and things like that. So I'm curious if there is a specific um, line of books or or publisher or, you know, uh, something like that, that publishes books that you are particularly fond of the way they lay out their typeface. Um, uh, you know, whether it's Penguin Classics or Modern Library or something like that. And now I don't, there may be, a, there may be brands um, in Australia that, I, that we don't have access to here. But I, I've always wondered that when you're looking at a bookstore, is there something where you see that spine on the shelf or that logo? And then you say, well, if I'm going to buy, I don't know, The Catcher in the Rye, I'm buying it in that version. Mm, that's a very good question. Um, I, I would say that a lot of the republished penguins are indeed absolutely beautiful, um, particularly the ones that are designed by David Pearson. He's an English uh, book designer, and he um, he just produced some absolutely beautiful works um, because he he used things like letterpress, you know, a printing process and so forth. So I I, I tend to kind of um, I tend to like uh, tactility, and I tend to like a sense of embracing the medium of print, you know, to mm. be able to do things in print that you cannot do on the web. Um, so I really, I'm, I mean, I'm really enjoying the, the revival of kind of book craft these days. Um, the fact that we're, we're beginning to kind of highlight those unique traits, you know, of print rather than kind of trying to sort of replicate them online. Mm. Um, so that's what I would say. But in terms of my, my favourite books would probably tend to be fairly old. They'd be kind of from about the mid-20th century or thereabouts. Um, I'm quite an avid book collector and um, I have a big a big personal library here and um, I tend to kind of like that era quite a lot because the, the printing was uh, a little bit rawer and uh, the paper stock was well, paper stocks were really interesting during that period. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's my favourite era anyway. What about those type those typefaces in particular? You mentioned the paper stocks and things were a little bit rougher. But is there something about the typefaces from that particular time that you most enjoy? Just you know, browsing through or or, the, or or that make for a more enjoyable reading experience? Are there specific design elements that they were doing then that we're not doing now? 
Well, funnily enough, I mean, there's, there are now, of course, huge revivals of those book faces. So, for example, if you take a type face like Caslon, for example, you know, which is very, 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 very common kind of book face. But now, of course, in the past 10 years, there's been so many new cuts of Caslon, you know, new interpretations of Caslon, which are absolutely beautiful. You know, they are just sumptuous. Um, and uh, so that's, that, that's, that's an example where really, it, you know, um, Sort of tough faces, which may be old, and you think you think can't be pushed any further. There's always room for reinterpretation. This kind of small incremental modernization. That's that's kind of how topography works. Is you know we we don't generally go in for the big massive change. It's about minute incremental change over time. So at almost at glacial speed, um, so that no one notices again. Okay, maybe it's that thing about being invisible again. Hmm. Does that excite you for you know, fifty years down the line or hundred years down the line, someone tweaking your your work, or does that? Yeah. Mean- no, it does because I think it really, but by, by being a topographer, um, you are contributing in, as I said, a very incremental way. But once your work is out there, it is then you know subject to. Um, somebody else's reinterpretation, somebody else's uh, sort of remix, I guess you could say, of, of your work, and I find that I find that really, really fascinating. I find that I find that very, very, very exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, here, here really is my last question. You talked about your book collection. So, yeah. For people who collect books, I always like to ask this: What are one or two, or whatever number you want to share, of your very favorite titles that you've collected? Um, I'd say probably my favorite. A journal as such would probably be um, Herbert Spencer's Typographica, which he produced um, in the sort of mid, mid uh, what would it be, the mid-50s uh, to 60s. And, he, and Herbert Spencer was, was a typographer by profession, but he was also um, a writer and an editor. And he was one of the first people to write about typefaces as, as a cultural phenomenon. So he would actually start to look at typefaces in the street, you know, how they work, how they inform. People, uh, and so forth, and that was that. That to me is just an absolute, absolute, um, um, extraordinarily important point in in typographic history. Unfortunately, uh, copies of Typographica are hideously expensive. Um, so I've only got a few issues, but I do have access to the whole collection, of course, through uni- university libraries. But um, that would be my uh, that would be one of my favourites. Um, there's also, I mean, I sort of tend to go for quite unusual books. Like there's one called. There's one which is designed by the Stone Twins. It's an American um, uh, book, and that's called so that's called Logo R.I.P. And what that looks at is the the um, the very short lifespans of particular logos and why they died and how they died. And that kind of is fascinating too, because the the whole book is actually set up as a as a sort of eulogy to these. Type, uh, to these particular logos that died, and 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 I, f- I find that that kind of humanization um, of graphic design absolutely fascinating. So you know, yeah, there's so much great stuff out there. Yeah, I always think about how you know you, you look at the '70s or something like that, and they you know someone designed some kind of font that we now associate with style from that era, but now we think it looks old-fashioned or something, or maybe it comes back in a retro sort of way. But hmm. people spent a lot of time studying that and you know crafting that and then it just then after a while people think well that's old <laughs> and i was I always wondered how does that how does that feel do you feel like you've made a mark on a period of time or do you feel like 
that's gone and you've not maybe not wasted your time, but you've been forgotten. So I've always, I, I might check that book out because I've always wondered how that, like, what is, the, how does that feel to that designer or even maybe to the company, but especially to the designer who spent the time to, to think about yeah. that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think, I think again, it's that, it's that kind of humility that maybe comes with being a little bit older that, and particularly like when you have kids and so forth, you, you begin to realize that you are just one part of an ongoing continuum, you know, that all of a sudden it's not about you. Almost every parent kind of comes to that sort of realisation. And in some ways um, that, that's a fairly similar realisation professionally, which is to say, well, I've just done my bit and my time will come and go and then it's over to other people, you know, and that's fine. That's completely fine. Hmm. So being a typographer is, you know, there's a, you're kind of entering into an, a conversation, you know, almost like being a, a, a novelist or something. You're, you're conversing with the novels of, you know, Henry James or Mark Twain or whatever over the, over the centuries. Is that, do you feel the same way about being a typographer? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, I certainly do. Because, you know, each, each, each book is, of course, an idea. And these ideas sort of incrementally creep along and they get developed. So it's about just, I guess, creating... Um, about, it's about really contributing a voice of some sort to the words that people read. And um, I, I actually think it's an extremely responsible job, you know, and um, a very important one. So I certainly don't take it flippantly or anything. And, um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's an inherent humility about being a topographer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is so fascinating to me. I, I could keep you for much longer than I promised. I already have kept you longer than I said I would. So <laughs> I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure, David. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again to Mr. Stephen Bannon for joining me for this conversation. Don't forget that if you want to learn more about Sans Forgetica, you can head over to sansforgetica.rmit. That's S-A-N-S-F-O-R-G-E-T-I-C-A dot R-M-I-T. Thanks as always for listening. And don't forget about all the great content here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We have our daily poem podcast. We have Close Reads where right now we are discussing The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John Le Carre. And we are just concluding a conversation on Shakespeare's Julius Caesar over on The Plays The Thing. We've got lots of great content for you. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And thank you for helping spread the word. And of course, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Libromania. For everyone here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Talk to you next week.